Welcome to Shiro's Journey, a podcast for Shiro's and the people who love them. Episode 5, Crossing the First Threshold. I'm Pamela Prather, and for over 20 years, I've been empowering actors, executives, and curious humans with tools to unlock their voices and tell their stories. Along the way, I found that for me, voice is about more than just how I speak. It's a spiritual journey. It's about connecting my inner voice to the outer world. It's about breath, resonance, and deep listening. It's how I show up every day as a coach, a mom, a friend, a sister, a poetic soul, and a passionate human. The structure of Shiro's Journey podcast is loosely based on the path outlined by Joseph Campbell in his book, The Hero's Journey, but it's from a woman's perspective. And in each episode, I talk with awesome Shiro's as they answer the call to adventure, battle the dragons, and ultimately win. Plus, there is a segment called Me and the Kid, a chat with my 11-year-old son that allows us to experience the world through the open eyes and candid voice of my kiddo. I hope you'll find inspiration, fuel, and even a little laughter as you imagine how you can amplify your own journey in the world. Hello, friends. It's great to be back with you. And thanks so much to those of you who are already subscribing to Shiro's Journey podcast. If you can take a minute and subscribe and leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts, that would be pretty amazing. This one really warmed my heart from SKW515, who wrote, It's enlightening to listen to Pamela's diverse group of guests as they discuss a wide range of topics you might not give much thought to ordinarily. I liken it to reading a book in a book group you wouldn't normally have picked up on your own, but feeling enriched for reading it. I hope to continue that feeling with today's episode as we focus on stage five of Shiro's journey. It is crossing the first threshold. This is the part of the journey where you're in motion and moving into unfamiliar territory. You don't know what's going to be around the next corner, but you just keep moving forward. You're digging down into your courage and feeling the flow and perhaps at the same time feeling the fear. Now, some of you might know that I took up skydiving a few years ago. I'd gone on my first tandem skydive in Whistler in Canada, and I was hooked. The metaphors of breath and jumping and trusting just flooded in. Not to mention the complete endorphin rush, I kid you not. (laughs) And I wanted to challenge myself to skydive without somebody on my back. I wanted to have my own back. So I went to a place up in New York called Skydive the Ranch, a really awesome community. And I went through ground school and I completed a few instructor-assisted skydives. Now I'm no expert, but each time that I jumped out, I literally chose to jump out of an airplane that felt to me like crossing the threshold. I mean, it really was crazy. You just take like one, two, three, you look to your left, you look to your right, and you call the jump. Because when you call that jump, you're free falling from 11,000 feet, and you can't go back and stop. You hit a terminal velocity of about 120 miles per hour at about 200 feet per second, right? And you've got to look at your gauges and decide when to pull the chute. Meanwhile, just it's all flying by. And it's amazing. The view, incredible. You've got to trust every piece of knowledge and experience that led you to that moment of flight. 
And I think today's Shiro, Deborah DeLiso, is a fantastic example of someone who keeps jumping again and again and again and crossing those thresholds. Deborah is a white identifying actor, writer, award-winning director, mother, and superstar Shiro. She received three California Arts Council grants to teach acting and playwriting in a medium security prison. Her work in prisons helped her learn to see the art in the individual, in her words. And in today's podcast, she open-heartedly shares how she kept moving forward and crossing the thresholds of fear to open space for transformation and catharsis. She shares with us that by daring to bring her own vulnerability and identity into the room, conversations, healing, and art can happen. I really encourage you to go to Deborah, D-E-L-I-S-O, that's DebraDeliso.com to connect with this awesome human. And of course, you'll find all the links in the show notes as always. But for now, take us on your walk, your run, in your car, or just find a quiet place to chill and enjoy my conversation with my dear friend, Deborah Deliso as she shares with us her experience of crossing the first threshold. I cannot tell you how awesomely honored I am to have Deborah Deliso here on Shiro's journey today. She is not only an incredible Shiro uh, as a mother, uh, an activist, an artist, a professor, a creator, an actor, She is someone I am honored to say is a friend, a sister friend, a dear friend. And when we came to crossing the first threshold, which is like often that super scary place where people are just trying to like dare themselves to move forward, uh, it's often hard, I think, when a person uh, is starting out and sees someone like Deborah who has (laughs) directed over 700 Uh, solo performance pieces and goes like, oh my God, well, how could I ever be like you? So I thought Deborah would be an amazing person to talk to and share because she's so, you are just such an open-hearted soul. And I just know that you're going to offer so much wisdom and guidance to people listening. So let's just start, shall we? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, you, my girlfriend, I wish you guys could all see her right now because I can see her beautiful face on my screen and I miss her. And we spent three years together in grad school and just hearing your voice again opens me up and makes me grateful and humbles me. Thank you. Thank you for having me so much. So when I looked at the prompts for this Shiro's journey. And when did you first feel your journey had taken off? I immediately went to right after grad school. I got a job with much nudging from my friend Zoot. Come work with the women in prison. And I had hesitated. I was like, you know, not sure I want to be in a room with a bunch of uh, criminals. I had a lot of judgment, so much judgment and fear. I had fear. And also, what do I have to offer? How am I going to help them? And also you spent three years in grad school and it's like, what? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but you know what? I set it up because in my statement of purpose, Pamela, you know what I wrote? I said, I want to bring theater to populations of women that don't have it. Wow. Boom. After I got my training, it came to me. But I do want to say this. 
you don't have to have a graduate degree to work with people that have been incarcerated. You just need willingness and they need artists. They need the artist's soul inside those walls. And so finally I said, okay, I needed to pay off my student loans. Can I just be frank about my motivation? (laughs) (laughs) You know, but isn't it funny how sometimes, you know, the practicality actually can turn into something soulful and deep. Yes. Yes. Right. And I just didn't think I was cool. I'm a white woman. You know what I mean? I, I'm, you know, I had a rough upbringing. I was raised in a, um, a family with an alcoholic dad and a disabled mom, but privileged to live in suburbia. You know, I, I guess it was more fearful in my home than out in the streets, but I didn't live on the streets. And I'm thinking I'm going to come in this population. They're going to like, who, who are you, white lady? What do you have to teach us? And I got some of that. How did you work with that? I mean, how did you let that experience kind of help propel your journey? Zood invited me in first as a movement teacher because my background is in dance. I was a competitive gymnast. I'm strong. And um, he invited me just for eight weeks to come in and teach a movement class. So I had created a dance piece with a bunch of eclectic pieces of music Um, about this lonely woman sitting in a chair and she starts hearing music and all these lives come out of her. And I thought, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to sit them down in a circle because music is such a shortcut to help us relate. And I will start and I'll say, let's visit a family member because one of my first projects in any group of playwrights or actors, even it's like uh, write a monologue as a family member and become them without judging them, but become them. And so I, you know, I had to take role and I had to train for a couple of days before going in. There's very much like a military complex. You have to have your keys on you at all time. You have to make sure that the doors, they put a guard in the room with you for like the first 15 minutes and then you're left alone. Okay. And it's 15 women and me. And I, I sat them down. I was trying to ground myself so that that would reflect on them. And I said, we're going to sit in a circle. And I've just got pieces of music that are instrumental and you guys can make of them what you want, but I'm going to start and I'm going to just be with a family member. And then I'm going to sit back and touch the person next to me. And they're going to come up and be with a family member in the middle of the circle. So I started and was very inspired just to be with Zan, my daughter, who was only like five at that time. And I was with her like as a little infant. I, it was just, and this is all imaginary, right? So you're imagining the person is there. Exactly. It's all uh, pantomime. Exactly. So I mm-hmm. actually got on the floor and picked up this little infant baby and smelled her and then put her down and started playing with her. And then I kind of, jump to her walking with me and holding hands and walking. Mm-hmm. And then after I finished, I felt very good about it. And then after I finished, it hit me, it struck me. I looked at their faces and some of them were crying and I went, Oh, what an ass. They can't visit their families. Oh my God. I'm so thoughtless. Why did I do that? Oof. And then I sat and I touched the person next to me And in her brave soul, she got up and she was with her father who was ailing. No, no, no words. We all just interpreted each other's dance. 
And then she sat down and then the next person was with a brother and then the next like with a husband and the next was with a sibling and on and on. And after the 15 were finished, we we I had a two hour class. We talked, we talked, we talked. My God, that was the right thing to do. And yet talk about taking steps. You don't know. You don't know the Shiro's journey. You don't know. This is the weirdness. It's leaping off of a cliff blind with a leap of faith and just going, this feels right in this moment for me. And that rightness and that courage, the instinct of me being with my daughter brought out their intimacy with their family members. So it was the right thing to do, even though I didn't think it through properly. Wow. I mean, that is so interesting, though, when you when you feel that nerve, nervousness, and you still keep moving forward, I wonder what do you think helped you support or helped to support you as you were, shall we say, crossing that threshold of this journey of moving forward rather than just saying, okay, I I, I really screwed up. What do I do? I, I is it can the guard come back? Just get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that thought crossed my mind. Because, you know, you, we look at each other's faces and our faces are scary until we know each other. I know people look at me. I have deep wrinkles in my face. And I think people think I look very stern and critical. And then when they get to know me, they see a softness. So I'm looking at their faces and thinking, oh, they're pissed off now. But some of them were crying. And so I was trying to judge where the energy was in the room. When I got into my imagination and was with my child, I was able to just be that in the middle of the circle. And so I think what I did was I got brave enough to model what the actor does, which is to hold the present moment without audience awareness. So I modeled that for them. And then one by one, they modeled for each other. And in that first class, the bond was made and we made it through uh, nine months. Uh, So I had 15 to begin, 13 stayed, and we wrote a play called From the Family. I had no idea what play we were going to write, but we wrote plays. Many of them were monologues of family members. Others were scenes. And then this, I got another grant. This was all through the California Arts Council. They, they pay grants to artists and the prison matches the funding. The second year we wrote a play called The Buckners, which was about a family that was dissolved because of the mother's addiction to Vicodin because many of the women are in prison because of their crimes because of drug addiction. And, they, and we sat around a table and decided what, what are we gonna write about this year? I also, in the second year, I had a, I had a, a huge challenge, which was that my inmate students were segregating and they started all kind of mixed around sitting wherever. And then on about the third or fourth week, the white women were sitting on one side, the Hispanic women were on one area of our circle and then the black women are, were on another. And they stopped working together. And I was like, this ain't going to work. It's not going to work. We're not going to write three different plays. We're going to write a play together. And I had um, recently seen American History X 
with Edward Norton. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's hard hitting, amazing. And I had to ask my boss, and then he asked he had to ask the warden if I could bring that film in because they had stopped talking. And in fact, there was it was so bad one night when two women were up in each other's faces, and I did something stupid, and I stepped in between them to try to just gently nudge them apart, and I almost got uh, smacked. Well, anyone who, I mean, obviously people listening may or may not know you, but you are, uh, you spoke earlier about holding up, lifting up. You are such a strong, physically strong woman, energetically strong, but I could just see that happen, you know, that your intuition would be like, I got this. And how did you, um, so speaking of, I got this, how did you get them together again? What helped you? Was it that movie? Believe it or not, it was that movie. Because they were like, I'm going to quit. I don't like this class anymore. I don't like their idea. I don't want to do this. And they started dropping out. And so I, it was like, okay, guys, movie night, please. I've jumped through hoops to get this movie here. I really want you to come. So I had them back for movie night. And it is a horrendous movie. It is so hard and awful. But what it is, is, is about white supremacist, a family of white supremacists who pride themselves on killing people of color. So you brought it in the room. You brought everything in the room. Exactly. In a way that was, you know, that gave them like a, a format in which to not blame one another, but to look at the problem outside of themselves, maybe. And to look at what happens if you just continue the divide, because what happens in the movie is that Edward Norton's younger brother, he's, he gets put in prison because he kills a black man brutally. He's in prison. Of course, they're all segregating in prison. And he becomes like one of the the tough, you know, uh, skinheads in prison and starts to be like a leader and getting following and realizes that he could be, you know, top dog in that circle. And then he and then he hears from his brother. Guess what? I got initiated and I'm in, too. And then he started realizing he cared more about his brother than himself. And he didn't want his brother to end up like that. So then the shift happens in the film and they, and so at the end of the film, there was silence in the room. There was silence. Everybody stayed though. And I said, so we, we can see where this goes guys. So we can do that and we can segregate and this group can fall apart and I don't have to come anymore and that's okay. Or we can decide to communicate and find out what's in us. And so that's when, that's actually when I believe we came up with what's common. What do we have in common? Drug, drug abuse, um, sexual abuse, um, uh, bring it, bring, being brought up in a family that doesn't give a shit about you. Da, da, da. We started talking about what we had in common. And then I said, wow, this sounds like a play. What's, you know, what's play about a family? Okay. What's the problem? The mother, the mother's the problem, you know? And then we started building the plot point. Well, there's such a huge acknowledgement that I hear from you. And one of the things I think that stops people uh, is, you know, these negative voices and these gremlins. And it sounds like, you know, you've found a lot of strategies to look at those in yourself and address them. 
Yes. Right? Yes. Thank you. Strategies. And you and you're not even sure everything's trial and error. As you know, as a teacher of many decades, it's trial and error at first, isn't it? Parenting is yes, kind of similar. Exactly. It's, let's see if this sticks. Yeah. Whoops. Sorry, honey. I hope you're not permanently damaged by that. Yes. Yeah. You will be in therapy, but I'm doing my best. Exactly. <laughs> therapy is a good thing. Yes. Get used to that yeah. concept. In part two of our interview, Deborah talks about her role in the cult horror movie classic Slumber Party Massacre and how we can look at every event in our lives as opportunities to heal through storytelling. I have to bring up, I have to bring up one of, you know, one of the things that uh, I thought was like really cool when I met you in grad school, aside from the fact that you called me and said, you, you called me out and said, you will want to have a child. And I'm like, no way, I'm oh, not going to have a kid. And now, right. <laughs> remember, right. <laughs> you did. You said, I, I'll, you will by the yes, time when you're about right. that age, da, da, da. Yeah. But I remember you were something of a cult star and had a bit of a following and you still do. I can't. It's, it's so weird. It's, it's, it's tell this story. It's a great story. It is creepy and wonderful. I mean, actually from the inside, it must be from the outside. It's fascinating because for some people you will always be, what were you 18, 20 or something? I was you 25 playing 18. 25 yes. playing 18, and it was the Slumber Party Massacre, right? <laughs> and this just takes me right off any, pe any pedestal I might have uh, put myself on. No, it's the truth, though. So, um, so, in, so I was this trained actress. I had my bachelor's. I had studied with brilliant people uh, and, you know, was not getting a lot of, of great auditions, not because I wasn't talented. I feel that I am. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm underused, but I don't think I'm commercial. You know, I don't, I don't have that. I, it was the, it was the era of Charlie's angels. I don't look like a Charlie's angel. I look like a real person. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean to. Well, I mean, you would have been, uh, you, you know, when we, we, Linda Hamilton, yes, what yes, was it? Linda yes, Hamilton, right? Yes, it was like, yeah. you're, you're definitely like body Thank type you. hero, super great muscle, yes. super strong, like that kind of thing. But when, uh, during that Charlie's Angels era, it was all like pretty and exactly, vapid, right? Exactly. It was like, <laughs> I'm not willing to do that much surgery on myself to look like that. So, <laughs> but I, but I had seen a, um, an audition in a drama log um casting uh paper for something called Sleepless Night and it was written by Rita Mae Brown a lesbian feminist novelist and I loved her books and it was directed by a woman named Amy Jones I thought this is cool written by a woman directed by a woman so I went and auditioned got called back read the script I thought it was pretty funny because it's it's basically like a satire of slash well you know what they didn't even use slasher yet. The term slasher was not coined until after this and a series of other films that were slashers because it is. But it's kind of like that era of Friday the 13th. Exactly. Jamie Lee. All that. And stuff, Jamie Lee right? started it. She, she really did. So long story short, I got the role. I had a blast making it. But of course, there it was tits and ass and blood and guts. And so I... And the director made it very clear. And she said, there's going to be partial nudity in this. And I was like, well, uh, okay. Um, 
you know, I was raised Catholic, but I was not a practicing Catholic, really. My religion is <laughs> kindness. But being raised Catholic does a trip on you. It does. There's a lot of guilt. I hear that. Yeah. There's like guilt and, you know, well, Catholic dad, Mormon mom. So the the common oh, wow. denominator was guilt. <laughs> You can't even have a soda without <laughs> feeling guilty. Yeah. So I got plenty of guilt. And then I'm asked to be in this movie and like do a shower scene and stuff. So I I just got brave and I said, well, you know, Amy, I, I competed for eight years in leotard. I'm very comfortable in my body, but I think I can do this. And so, and I did. And my my mom wrote a letter during this saying, honey, I'm so glad you got this part in this movie, but what, what parts are going to be exposed? Your, your gizmos or your poppy? And so this, my mother, the nurse, <laughs> used these terms. And I said, just the gizmos, mom, not my poppy. So um, but the, so I made $40 a day on this film. This was before I was a member of the union. I made $40 a day. I had a blast, met some Joe Johnson, one of my lifelong friends, Long story short, the movie came out. I felt very guilty. There's my breasts. Ah, um, but it and they're and they're on these huge. giant screens. Huge. They've never been so big. That was how you got your enlargement surgery. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Right. Well, no, you can you can tell they're real. But the the thing was, we thought the movie would come and go. It's 30, 30 some years now, and I make. And you get invited, right? You get well, invited to I, these special. Kim, I make more money signing autographs in a weekend than I did on a three-week shoot. It's bizarre. And at first, when I started getting invited to horror film conventions, I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be with these really kind of creepy people. No, 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 not at all. They are so cool. And I made a little uh, movie. I have to edit it. But I said, what is it that draws you to these bloody horror films? And my favorite interview was a woman who I think was around, she was maybe in her 40s. She had Down syndrome. And she said, because I have been abused. And when I saw this movie and the girls band together and they killed the killer, I was rooting for them. And I felt I could do that. And it was like, I was sold. I was sold on the fan base. I said, if this can help well, someone that go through that, you got me, you got me. It became, it becomes an archetype, it does. doesn't it? A sort of an archetype instead outside of the story itself. Exactly. Right? exactly. So interesting. Yeah, so interesting. it is fascinating, isn't it? You know, and the fans are awesome. I really, I, I, and I went to Texas this year for my first time. We were gonna, I was gonna, I was in another horror film too uh, recently. That was weird how I got that. I was in a public service announcement last year playing a hospice nurse. And during the break, I... I and by the way, your mother was a nurse, I know, right? So these, here's how weird it's just this. Weird. All these, it's not weird. It's as it should be. All these circles. So the young director, I said, so what's next? You're, you're, you're really wonderful. He had graduated from USC and we talked about that. And um, he said, well, I'm... I finally get to direct my horror film. I go, oh, oh, good for you. I said, I, I was in one. He goes, which one? And I go, the Slumber Party Massacre. He rolls up his sleeves and he's got drills tattooed on both of his forearms. He goes, I love my, that's like my favorite film. Because the, the killer in Slumber Party Massacre uses a drill. It's so phallic. 
right? And so, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> and then he kills, he kills the girls and he goes, I love you. Oh, my goodness. I love you. It's so creepy. That sounds creepy. As much as I love you, I, I can't, like, scary movies creep me out, so I never watch them. So I love you, but I, I you know, it's like if it's beyond a PG movie, I pretty much can't watch it. <laughs> I, I, I don't blame you. I can't watch them late at night. If I watch them earlier during the day and have other things in the way, I'm good. But I can't, because I regurg regurgitate those those images. I'm like, yeah, hey. yeah. And it's just, I feel like it's not healthy, you know, but there's a huge fan base. Well, it's so, you know, huge. as we have this chat and, and you share with, share with me and with, with the podcast listeners, just these different elements of your journey, the kind of very, some, you know, what feels so like meaningful and heavy and intense and it's like wow uh she goes into these prisons and helps women find their voices and has done all these things and and then someone might say like oh yeah and then did these these uh horror movies whatever you can see how judgment can come into that either positive or kind of negative and when you get yeah. deeper both of them are just callings and both of them are healings because you provided just as much healing for the person with Down syndrome as you do for the women mm -hmm. in the prison. And so it really is such a beautiful mm -hmm. opportunity for one to just recognize the potential to categorize and judge and to just, as you said earlier, leap across those thresholds as they appear with as open a heart and as little judgment as possible, right? Oh, gosh. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. That's exactly it. And I got to get my self-judgment out of the way in order to go, it's all storytelling. And stories heal us. Stories truly heal us. We learn about who we are from stories, from witnessing stories, from creating stories, from listening to our dreams as Meg would have us do, one of our teachers. Um, so I, I think it's, so once again, for your listeners, it's about getting out of your own way and creating art that just comes through you. Often it does come through dreams. It does come through dream work. I wrote my, so I've written myself three solo plays. My first one was about my mother, which you saw and helped mm -hmm. me with the nurse June show. I had to write about her before I could write about mm -hmm. myself. The second one was Isadora Duncan because I admired her greatly. She was a woman who lived a hundred years before us, but was so much a, more of a courageous um, maverick feminist. I, I call myself a feminist. I am working on being a good feminist. I don't I have negativity in that word at all. But so I had to write about Isadora Duncan and then embody her. And then finally, my third one person played, not finally, I'll write more, but I finally got to myself. And that was called Beautiful, Terrifying Love. And that one I took to the Edinburgh Festival and got into the, the LA Women's Theater Festival. And it was about the childhood. It was about the family I came from and then into the family that, I created with Dan and Zan. Mm -hmm. And it was about the 
battleground of the family household and the healing of the family household and the big lessons. But woven through that was dreams because when I was little, Pam, I had a reoccurring nightmare that I was, that I, that I would wake up and heard something in the hallway and I would slowly go to the door and listen and I couldn't hear anything. So I opened the door and it was dark and I would walk out and then there was a figure of a man, couldn't tell who it was, but a dark man. And he would raise a knife and stab me in the heart. I would always wake up before I got stabbed, but I knew I was stabbed in the heart. So as a kid, I thought I was going to be murdered someday. And, but it, it makes sense, you know, it was really, it was not a comforting um, childhood place. And then when I got older, I made the movie and I got stabbed in the heart. I was killed in that movie by being stabbed in the heart. Wow. And then later I was at a, um, a Unitarian Universalist summer camp. I love, I love them. They were very much into Thoreau and Emerson and just really cool people. And the Reverend Jeremy Taylor was there and he was a dream interpreter. And every night at nine o'clock, those of us that wanted to stay up would go and he would listen to people's dreams. On about the third night, I got brave and told him about my reoccurring nightmare. And I, and it did end once I got my first boyfriend back because he made me feel safe. Mm -hmm. But I said, I, I had this dream about getting stabbed in the heart with a knife. And he said, what was your, what was your family? What was your childhood? Like I told him a little bit and he said, well, the knife in dreams often represents a sharp intelligence. And I think you were a smart kid trapped in the home of addicts and you felt helpless. And hallways are always about trying to pass through something. And you were stuck there. You were stuck in that hallway. And that helped me have so much um, like a, a different framing of the dream. And it, and it, and it really um, opened my eyes up to that poor little kid. Because, you know, kids don't, they don't get to make the choice of the family. Or maybe they do. Maybe souls choose. I don't have the answer to that. But I, I certainly felt, you know, I wanted to fix everything. I want to make everything good and not have people so angry at each other. But that was a place that I, that I felt trapped. Yeah. But so that my play, that's in my play. So my point is like these dreams come to us in service. That's what he said. Dreams come to us in service. We're trying to work something out. So working it out in my play was a good, healthy thing to do. And then putting in front of an audience, they witness it. And then that kind of makes you go, okay, guess what? I told that story. I can move on. Well, when you're in unfamiliar territory, and, uh, you know, obviously childhood is unfamiliar territory because you're navigating so much as a young one. Uh, you know, it, it is that that it is scarier and scarier to get out of that hallway, to move through that. It is scary to move through that hallway and to yes. uh, to cross into our purpose. Right. And to live the purpose. Exactly. Exactly. So you are a woman of many dreams, some consciously laid out. Uh, and in fact, funny that you shared that your 
you know, in grad school, you said you wanted to help women with, you know, tell their stories. And here you have done that many times over. But if somebody has a big dream and looks at someone like you and says like, wow, how the heck could I ever achieve my dreams? Like it seems like she has, whether it's launching a podcast or becoming a speaker or writing a play or whatever it is, uh, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them? Uh, First, I think I would say it's never too late because I didn't write my first play. I wrote skits and comedy stuff in bits and pieces, but I didn't write my first play until my late thirties. And furthermore, I have a dream right now to make a feature film. And my naysayers and the, how are you going to get the money and all of that stuff come up? But I know that I just have to schedule Deborah time in order to make that happen. And so I didn't know that I could write a play. I didn't know that I could direct, you know, hundreds of one person plays. I didn't even know I could get a job in a college. Dream big without limitations. Dream big without the limitations of finances or having the resources to put your team together. Just picture it first and keep picturing it. And then every day or every week, make small steps toward that. Little miracles do happen, but it doesn't sort of just land. You don't just go sit down and have a meditation and then boom, someone knocks on the door and goes, I want to produce your movie. That hasn't happened yet, but little things start coming. They do. I see them. And that's how my dreams have come about because of my imagination. Maybe it's about being specific about what I picture. I think it's about being specific about what I picture in my mind. I used to do this as a gymnast. There would be a move that I wanted to do. I wanted to do a you know, round off back handspring or a, a kip uh, from the low bar to the high bar. How am I going to suddenly do that? Well, I dreamt about it. I would learn, like I would go with my coach and work on it. She'd spot me. Couldn't do it. Couldn't lift myself. Dream. Picture myself doing it. Next day, got closer. It's just the truth of it. Write in your head, produce in your head, create, sculpt, dance, sing, create in your head first and feel it as you're creating it and feel how good it makes you feel. And then those molecules come together, I think, and start forming those those little synapses that are sparks of electricity start bringing physical matter together. I guess that's how it happens. Is that how it happens, Pamela? You have had it happen too. Well, I, I would say, <laughs> yes, that sounds just about yeah, we're right to me. And we don't even know it. <laughs> I think humans are alchemists, right? We, and, if, and as you said earlier, get out of our own way and just that clarity. Someone recently said to me, yeah. Be careful what she's a big, very successful businesswoman who sold her company, went public. And she's yeah. like, Pamela, be careful for what you really wish for because it will come true. Yes. And so, you know, what you intend, what you write, what you, what the movements that you make both subconsciously and consciously yes, they are. are, they manifest in real important. ways. So that's what I would love your hello listeners. Hi, beautiful listeners. I just want to acknowledge anybody that listens to this. You're, 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 you're 
You're listening to two girlfriends that love each other deeply. I just want you to notice we both have the same plant in our background. This is funny. Yeah, we'll take a photo of this and you'll see it, yeah. but it's it's hilarious. Yeah. And people always used to confuse us. They used to say, they used to call Deborah Pamela, Pamela Deborah. We would just know. We go, we go, you mean Deborah. And they, yeah, that's Pamela. Yeah. I agree. It's so true. Same. I know. <laughs> Well, I adore you and thank you so much for being here today and for just being an awesome friend and role model. And it's like we could just pick up, if you were my neighbor, we'd go for a walk right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And let's get our children together. I can only imagine that Deborah's story will inspire you to explore and frame your dreams and fears so you can live your best life every day. Create your vision, and those sparks will ignite your potential. You can follow Deborah's journey on Instagram on Deborah Deliso and reach out to her through DebraDeliso.com. Now, coming up, me and the kid, where you get my 11 year old son's perspective on crossing the first threshold. Shiro's journey. Shiro's journey. Me and the kid. The kid. Me and the kid. Yeah. Hi, Harrison. Hi, Mom. How you doing? Good. (laughs) And I'm glad to be with you again. Yep. It's always nice to be here with you, and I'm so glad we do this Shiro's Journey, me and the kids section together. It's so special, and we'll always look back on this, right? It's fun. (laughs) So today is called Crossing the First Threshold. It's episode five of the Shiro's Journey, and it's part five of the journey. And I'm curious if you have an idea of what that might mean, like crossing the first threshold. Well, I know crossing, of course, means like usually going over or passing You sometimes. And I think threshold means like a door or like a space that you can be in, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's like an entrance. So crossing a threshold would be like opening a new door and walking through or like entering a house. Ooh, look at you. That was very good. (laughs) I like it. I like it. So I'm wondering, and I just talked to my really good friend, Deborah, who was talking about many of her challenges and the times that she's uh, challenged herself. And I talked a little bit about skydiving. Remember when I did that? that That was funny because you'd send photos back and I'd be like, <laughs> I, I would never skydive, but I think you it's sure? cool that you do. Well, thanks, babe. So I, what I'm interested in, though, is from your perspective, what are some moments or times that you can think about when you've had to open a new door, as you like to, as you just said, or cross a new threshold? Well, I guess it'd probably be going from, in my case, middle school starts in fifth grade, so... Going from fourth grade to fifth grade, going to South, with the school that I went to for most of my life, had really fun at, saw most of my friends. That was your elementary school, right? South? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or one of my elementary schools. Prez was kind of that too, but South South was my elementary school, I'd say. And going to Saks, the middle school there, I was really entering a new, uh, entering a house, entering a new room, you know, like crossing a threshold. Wow, I'm a middle schooler now. I met more of my friends' friends. Um, still have the same friends, but like I met way more new friends, and it was a, it was a scary but really fun and awesome experience. So when you were feeling that scary part, which 
often happens when you start something new or you're really jumping into something new. There's those scary moments. What helped you through the scary moments? Well, I think helping me through the scary moments would probably be like I had a teacher, Miss I. Paluccio, who is my third grade teacher. And she, when I was scared because I didn't like my South in my first year. It wasn't very fun. I didn't have very many friends at all. I, I got bullied a little bit, but like she kind of helped me like still look at that year and be like, wow, that was actually a great year because I had an awesome teacher and mentor going back to the whole mentor thing, but like <laughs> a, like a, like a teacher who like kind of helped me and was a positive presence there. So it sounds like you were you were able to use uh, some of the resources around you, right, to help you through the scary parts. And one of those resources was a really awesome teacher. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a good idea. Good way through. And what was scary about crossing a threshold or opening a new door? What 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 are those scary things? Well, I think something scary would probably be getting bullied. That's always scary. Mm -hmm. And then I wasn't a kid who got bullied physically, but very mentally. Like, kids would, like, just talk to me about, oh, your parents are divorced. That's, like, Mm. you know, and that that was. But the the reason I think I got through that year and still classify that year as a pretty darn good year is because I made a, uh, not a lot of friends, but I made, like, the, I was, crossing a threshold, making a little bit of friends, you know, like seeing the possibilities. Oh, he looks nice. You know, like, oh, maybe next year, at the end of the year, this year I I met someone, maybe next year we'll become better friends, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And I think that's the reason that was a really looking up year. And fourth grade was an awesome year, hectic year. Crazy year, but awesome year. We all have those fourth grade years, even when you're old like me. (laughs) Those hectic years. But it sounds, what I'm hearing you say, though, is that you kept looking for the positive, even though sometimes it was kind of hard, scary, Mm -hmm. and uh, looking for those places to latch on to something you could count on. Totally. Mm -hmm. I agree. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your awesome words of wisdom. You're a fabulous kid. I'm so glad I'm your mom. Thanks. Love you, mom. (laughs) Love you, babe. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us on Show's Journey Podcast. You'll find extra info and links in the show notes. Also, please make sure to visit us on Show'sJourney.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. While you're at it, if you liked our show, we'd really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. And it would be great if you told a friend about us, too. Thanks, Harrison. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'd love to hear from you. Just hashtag Shiro's Journey Podcast on social media. And please just take a minute to subscribe on our website, shirosjourney.com. My own special Shiro shoutouts go to Deborah DeLiso, a dear friend and Shiro sister. I am so privileged to know. To my fearless associate producer and always superstar Shiro, the one and the only Emma Bird, for her awesome designs and endless positivity. Podcast producer extraordinaire Mike Toda, the fantastic Tord Funk, who composed the music for my show, and Randy Savage for the show sweepers. Big love to the awesome Shiros and supporters in my life. You know who you are. And of course, a humongous shout out to all the Shiros in the world and the people who love them. Take a deep breath 
dive into your journey. You got this. Keep climbing those mountains and slaying those dragons. See you next time.